Before we get into the book of Genesis, we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 this morning. But before we even get into the first book of the Bible, before we even read the first uh, words of Scripture, uh, we have to ask ourselves a very serious question. And that is, what is the Bible? Why do we read it? And I ask that, I think that's an important question because what we often do is we think the Bible is a book to tell us moral right and wrongs. And oftentimes when people read the Bible, they, the first mistake they will make is they go to the Bible because they want to fix their life. And they want to look at it, and then we often look at it like it's some sort of manual or it's some sort of instruction book. Maybe you've even seen little acrostics like B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth. And you've seen things like that, and you go, okay, it's this instruction book. It's to tell me how to live. I've even heard people say it's a roadmap to life. And I want to say it's not necessarily a roadmap to life. I mean, the Bible has maps in it, but it's not a roadmap to life. It doesn't tell you, didn't tell me where to go to college, didn't tell me where to live, it didn't tell me what to name my kids, it didn't tell me who to marry, although uh, it didn't tell me to marry Jessica, although the, there is Jesse in the Bible, but that's a tribe named after a dude, and I'm pretty sure that didn't apply to who I marry. And so it's, it's not a manual, it's not an instruction book, it's not life hacks, it's, it's something more. Um, and here's why I say all that, because the Bible is not a book about you and me. It's not. It's really a book about Jesus. Every story in the Bible inevitably points to Jesus. Every commandment, every character, everything in Scripture is going to point us to Jesus. There's this great resource that I like to read to my boys, specifically around Easter and Christmas, before I put them to bed at night. I, I have this resource that's called the Jesus Storybook Bible, and, it, and it's awesome. It's, it's awesome even if you're not a parent. If you just want to read it as a single person, it is it's incredible. And it, it's got your typical Bible stories in it, but the writer has this really clever way of tying in every story to Christ. And, and even, in, even as I read it to my kids and I'm reading these stories that I grew up maybe hearing in uh, Sunday school when I became a believer later on in, in life, and I remember hearing these stories about David and Goliath and about Noah and the ark. And as I'm reading these, and the writer has this really clever way of just saying, hey, this is why this existed so that you would see Jesus. And sometimes I read it, I just get emotional. I'm reading it to my kids and I'm, I'm tearing up and they're like, dad? I'm like, oh, yeah, mom made me onions or something, and that's what's going on. You know, I'm not crying over this story. But, but, I, but it, it just strikes me, this beautiful story. And the author has this really clever uh, uh, line in the book. He says, every story whispers his name. Every story whispers the name of Jesus. This is a book about Jesus. It's not a guide on how to fix your life. But here's the irony. When you see that the Bible is all about Jesus, that truth in and of itself will begin to fix you. Or we could say it like this. The point of the Bible is not to tell you how to fix your life, but to fix your eyes on Jesus. And when that happens, his power begins to fix you. So I want you to see all of that before we get started so that we can approach this book in the right way. And if we don't approach this book thinking about Christ as the ultimate purpose of this book, what we're going to do is what we often do when we see people handle Genesis. We get lost in the trees of all the, all the things of the possibilities of what it could mean. Did dinosaurs live at the same time we did? How old is the earth? Are there gaps between certain chapters did Adam have a belly button? We wonder these questions. 
Now, some of these things, and some of y'all are now getting that, some of these things are good to study. However, the purpose of Genesis isn't necessarily to answer those questions. It was not the author's intent to answer these questions as he wrote it. So here's the author, Moses. Moses wrote Genesis along with the first five books of the Old Testament. And his purpose of writing this book is to to show God's perfect design and how creation should lead us to the creator. Now, little did Moses know as he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that it would mean so much more than he even realized that this book actually points us to Jesus. And that's what we're going to see in the first few verses. Genesis chapter 1, I'll start in verse 1. You guys excited? Right. In the beginning, God. Isn't that interesting? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, if you didn't go, grow up going to church, if you've never been to church in your whole life and this is your first time this morning, you are still familiar with this phrase. Most people recognize that these are the first books of Scripture. However, we don't often stop and think about the significance of this phrase. We hear this phrase, and when we stop and ponder it, it kind of freaks us out, does it? Does it not? Our minds will naturally race back to the first moment of time. We try to imagine the imaginable. What was it like in the instant when everything we see around us came into being? At one moment, there was nothing, and afterwards, now there's this universe to explain. What was that like? Now, in order for us to try to understand that, we have to understand uh, what the phrase in the beginning means, because it doesn't necessarily mean the beginning of everything. According to the Hebrew word that Moses chose to use here for beginning, it actually means the beginning of time as we know it. It's the beginning of time in which God put together the world in such a way where human beings would dwell. That's what he means when he says In the beginning. Now, here's why that's significant to know, all right? In other creation accounts, whether it be of other religions or philosophies or ancient myths, this is how they see the world coming into being. The universe will come from something, typically. There are usually multiple gods, and our universe is a result of some sort of cosmic battle. According to one myth, Human race, the human race arises from the blood of a slain God. In another race, in another, uh, in another uh, myth, humans are created from the remains of a dead sea monster. And in these accounts, humans are typically seen as an accident or something as an afterthought or the result of a cosmic force that has nothing to do with them. Yet, in Genesis... Time as we know it starts with who? Good. All right, good. I was, I was worried. God creates everything out of nothing. It's a Latin phrase that's been used over the years of, uh, to capture this idea. It's ex nihilo, which means out of nothing. He spoke it, and it happened. And he says, heavens and earth. God created the heavens and the earth, meaning the earth, stars, the moons, space, and the entire cosmos. Now, a lot of people get caught up here. What happened before time as we know it? Did he create the world in literal days? Are there gaps between certain days? Now, I want to say this. You can land on differing views of creation 
of the creation account and still be a Bible-believing Christian. However, we all have to, as we read this, have to agree that God created everything out of nothing. And we also have to agree that he did so with a very intent purpose and plan in mind. Throughout this chapter, we're going to see that plan unfold. Look at chapter, verse 2 of chapter 1. He says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Now, verse 2 is sort of an eerie verse. The world was dark and has no form. It's empty. And we have sort of this, the Spirit is hovering over the, the earth. What does God do to fix that problem? He says, let there be light, and light happens. There's a few things I want to bring out here. When we read in the beginning, we have to understand what is intended here. When in the beginning, God, we have to understand what is intended here is that you have the Trinitarian Godhead. And what that means is God is in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, and they're all God. They're all equal, and they're all God. They're all one. Now, what's, what's challenging is, when we read it, it says, okay, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth, and then we see the, the next part is, and the Spirit's hovering over the water. But what we don't see in this text is the Son, So how do we know that the sun, I mean S-O-N, not S-U-N, right? The sun is in this passage. How do we know that he was in the beginning? Well, we have to understand that that had not yet, that part of redemptive history was not yet revealed to its original hearers. So when the Hebrews read it, they would have, the Jews read it, they would have understood it as, okay, in the beginning, God the Father, and then we see the Spirit hovering on the waters, but they didn't understand yet the full weight of the Trinitarian Godhead. And so now we live on this side of the cross, and we now look, because what we know what Christ did, now we look back in Genesis, and we have to look at it in a different way than the original readers would have understood it. And so what we have to do now is I want to take you, take you somewhere that brings this idea all together, that it was not just the Father and not just the Spirit, but it was Father, Son, and Spirit. Turn with me, if you will, to John chapter 1. Hold your place in Genesis 1, which is not hard because it's like the first page. So um, what we have in John chapter 1, John is an apostle of Jesus. John was one of Jesus' disciples. He saw Jesus perform miracles. He saw Jesus live a perfect, sinless life and die an innocent death on the cross. He saw Jesus after he rose from the grave, before he ascended to heaven. And then he saw the Holy Spirit then fall upon him. And then he began to do miracles and live out and continue in the ministry that Jesus started in the church. And and, and John was a part of the first church. And the the very first church that ever happened, John was a part of that. And so now John writes as an apostle everything that he saw about Jesus. And he does so in two different audiences. Now stay with me here because this is significant and weighty when we try to understand Genesis chapter 1. John is writing in a way that he's being a missionary. He's writing to two different cultures. He's writing to his Jewish friends, and he's also writing to the Greeks. And the Greeks at this time had outnumbered the Jews one million to one. And so he's saying, okay, if I want the gospel to to go out to the world, I want the Greeks to know the gospel. 
And so what he does in John chapter 1 is he writes kind of provocative, provocatively to both crowds. He's trying to bring these cultures together, these, these Hebrews, these Jews, and these Greeks together so that they can understand the gospel. And so the gospel would then cover the world. And I love the way he writes it. But I'm going to tell you, John chapter 1 is weird. Like, I meet people all the time, and they're like, if you want a real disciple, a new believer, give them the gospel of John and, and then walk through it with him. Let me tell you that. That is a bad idea, okay? It is really hard to understand. It, it's really strangely written. Let me just show you. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. That, that's, even that in and of itself, if you don't understand the context and what John's communicating, it's strange. Okay, in the beginning was the Bible. Wait, how did that work? So it's like a book that's telling me what's about to happen. That's, that's confusing, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he says he was in the beginning with God. Okay, if you've never been to church in your life, have no understanding, and you read that, you're like, what is happening here? What is going on? Well, we have to understand that he's communicating to two different audiences, and we have to understand the, the way that he uses the word, word. Word? We good? Now, that's one of my favorite words to text. I, I love using that word. Like, hey, man, we're good for lunch today? Word. I, I just love texting that. I don't ever say it. I just love texting it. And so, but here's what we have to understand. The word, word, means logos. Maybe I'll text that. We're good for lunch? Logos. Um, but in Hebrew... Uh, in Hebrew culture, the word word was paramount. The logos was paramount. And because of their lineage, the Jews, the Hebrews, they could trace this back even from Abraham, that when God spoke his word, he acted on his word. When things happened, it was his word through the prophets, his word through the priest. When things were created, we just read it in Genesis chapter 1. When God said with his word, let there be light, it happened. And so in Hebrew culture with the Jews, they understood God's word as God's action. This is how God accomplishes things. We just, the, the, the text that uh, Sarah just read this morning in, in, with the band, she's, she read it, Isaiah 55, 10 through 11. For as the rain and the sun and the snow come down from heaven and do not, did not return there but water the earth, making it uh, bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eaters, eater, so my, shall my word be that goes through my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and it shall succeed in the things for which I sent. And so the Jews read Isaiah 55, and they think, okay, this is how God acts. He acts through just saying it, and it happens. He acts through his word. He acts through his logos. So that's for the Jews, but how about the Greeks? How about this large number of people who've never really understood who Jesus is? What does the word word mean? What does logos mean to them? This word is important for them because they have this deep, the Greeks have this deep passion for philosophy. If you've ever studied any kind of Greek philosophy, you're studying Plato, Aristotle, Socrates. And I remember this one guy I studied um, Greek philosophy in college. And I'm going to tell you, that's where the big bucks are, all right? If you want to major, it's going to make you tons of money. Greek philosophy, all right? You can use it in so many places in life. 
sarcasm, all right? And so I read this one book uh, by a guy named Heraclitus, and he wrote On Nature. And if you are struggling sleeping one night, just grab that book. You will be asleep in minutes. Um, Heraclitus actually had influence over Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and Alexander the Great. All of this happened, by the way, before Jesus came into the world. And Heraclitus, Heraclitus had this idea and this phrase that every Greek would have known and understood because of his influence. And it was this idea, and he, this phrase, you can never put your foot into the same river twice. That was a statement that he made. And what he's trying to say is the world is constantly in motion, it's constantly changing, and you can never trust it fully because it's always changing and it's always in flux. And so he came up with this idea. This, these philosophers would always come up with these ideas. Okay, how do we bring the world together? How do we, how do we have a world of harmony and of peace? And how does it make sense? And there was, they landed on the only way to do that is to know philosophy, is to have knowledge. And then through, through knowledge, we become more enlightened. Even Plato, he came up with this idea of a philosopher king. There was one who would be up that's greater than us, and, and he's divine, or he, had, or he has some divine attributes, and he would know all things, and he would bring all things together. Isn't that interesting? All of that happened before Christ came into the world. And so they would understand this as like, this is the logos. This is the pinnacle of all things. This is the knowledge of all things. This is how we're enlightened, and this is how the world can make sense. This is how the world can, can be brought together. And so what is... John say as a missionary who's writing these words to the Jews, who's writing these words to the Greeks. He says, listen, guys, in the beginning was the Logos. And he says, he was with God. And so now they're on the edge of their seats going, okay, what could he mean by he? I thought this was a word. I thought this was something that we heard. I thought this was an idea, but no, John's going to say it's not a word, it's not an idea, it's a person. It was a person who was there with God in the beginning. John chapter 1, verses, start verse 3, look at what he says. All things were made through him, and without him, not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the dark was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Who could this be? Well, then he clarifies it. Skip down in verse 14. And the word, the logos, the one that was there in the beginning, the one that was with God, the one that is God, became what? flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory and he tells you just so you know glory as of the son from the father full of grace and truth so how does god act to the jews to the hebrews who heard this they would have said god is going to act not just through his spoken word but through this person and that person is his son. 
to the Greeks who would have read this, they would have said, okay, what's going to bring all things together? What's going to bring harmony and peace to this world that is constantly changing? He says it's the Logos, and the Logos, friends, is not an idea. It's a person, and that person is Jesus. And he's saying, and guess what? He's always been. He's always been here. Jesus was there at the beginning And that's when we read Genesis 1, and we see in the beginning was God. Yes, we see the Father. We see the Spirit hovering over the water, but we know it on this side of the cross that the Son was there, and he was present. And then John says this in John chapter 1, verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made that was made. See what John just says there? Jesus didn't begin on Christmas morning. That's what he's saying. Jesus has always been. Do you feel the weight of that this morning? Is that not amazing this morning when you read that? Jesus Christ was there before time as we know it. He came into the world to bring light in the darkness. Sinless, he entered this world. Innocent and perfect, he died. He rose from the grave and he ascended at his rightful throne in heaven. But before he came into the world, the same Jesus who died for you and me is the same Jesus that created you and me. Look at what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1. I'll start in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. This is Jesus. For by him all things were created in heavens and earth and visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And in, in everything he might be preeminent, for in him all The fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You see what Jesus, what Paul just says about Jesus. This is what he says. Every cell, every atom, every molecule to every piece of dust on the ground Every thread of our fabric, every star in the sky, every solar eclipse, all of it, all of it was created through him and for him. And he holds it all together. Even the wood on the cross that held up his body when he died, he held it together. He did that. Now, here's the implication of all this. The purpose of all creation is Jesus. The purpose of all creation is that human beings would know Jesus. So even in the narrative of creation that we just read in Genesis chapter 1, the darkness is covered by the light when God simply says, let there be light. And now what John is saying in in his gospel is that God's word is a person who's going to come and bring light in in the darkness of this world. And that person is Jesus. When we read in the beginning and we understand that this phrase means that as, we, as time as we know it, this should impact us significantly. Let me explain. If you've been coming to integrity for a while, you know that I love telling stories, all right? 
And I'll often start a sermon with a story. I'll, I'll love to tell a story about my family or about something that happened in my life or my time in college or going up as a kid in Rocky Mount. And if you know, you know that because I do it all the time. And I, I, I don't have a lot of stories. I've got like 12, and I just tell them over and over and over again. And if you haven't noticed that I tell them over and over and over again, you haven't been coming consistently or you're just not paying attention. But that is what I do, Okay. And I do it for a reason. Like, I grew up, my father loves to tell stories. And he's got, like, 12 stories, too. And he's like, hey, have I ever told you about the time? And I just, now I just give up. Because it doesn't matter if I say yes or no, I'm going to hear the story. No, I never heard that before. And then as he gets older, the stories get crazier and crazier. Remember, you were, you were six foot tall back then. Dad, I've never been six foot tall, but keep going. You know, it's just like the same thing. And, and, and so I love to tell stories. I learned it from my father. But it's a way that what I learned with my father, why, why he does it, is it's his way of relating to people. And it's my way of relating to people. I want to relate to you as our church, and I want you to know who I am. And I also want to relate stories because it helps you understand Scripture more. But here's the thing about stories. God also likes telling stories. God is a great storyteller. But here's the really awesome thing about God. God doesn't just tell us a story and exaggerate it like I might. God actually creates the story. And then tells us. God gets to create his own story and then communicate it in a way that points us to Jesus. Isn't that awesome? He tells the story that he created. And so as we see creation, creation is God setting the stage to tell the greatest story that would ever be told. Creation is he's setting the structure where human beings would dwell, where they would fall, and they would need a Savior. And then he would send his Savior into the world to die in our place. And not only do we get to read the story, but we get to be in the story. And not only do we get to be in the story, we get to be partakers of his grace that's in the story. Isn't that awesome? I'm excited about this. Y'all excited about this? All right, good. Y'all excited about this? All right, good, 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 good. All right. Now, as we study Genesis, there's a few things that God wants you to know about himself. God wants you to know why you were created, why you were here, why you were created so that you, were no, that you would know Jesus. And guess what? Everything else around you that he's created is for the same purpose that you would know Jesus. Everything else was to draw you to Jesus. We're going to unpack that more throughout the series, especially next week. But the other thing that God wants you to see, God wants you to see that he knows you well. The beauty of seeing Jesus as a part of creation is this, that you realize that the same Jesus who shed his blood for the world is the same one who formed you and made you, which means this. You are known by your creator. Your creator didn't make a cosmic, it wasn't out of a cosmic explosion and something just happened by chance. You, friends, are not an accident. This is not a coincidence. Rather, this was an intentional, relational, glorifying, created attempt that God has put together by his sovereign grace and his love. 
And this is important for you to see because sometimes we think about God as this one who created us that's distant and far. And he's this cosmic killjoy who sets all these rules for us to follow. And if we don't follow them, then he's going to punish us. And if we do follow them, then he's going to reward us. And he's this distant thing out there that's just created things. And he doesn't know us. No, he formed you. And not not only did he form you, but his son formed you. His spirit formed you. And all three members of the Trinity as one Godhead formed you and they know you. And when Jesus died on the cross, he died for the one that he formed. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. And so that's the other thing that God wants you to know. He created you for the purpose of seeing Jesus and that he knows you. But there's a danger when it comes to studying creation. And the danger is that we won't see this picture. And so let me explain it to you this way. When Jess and I first got married, we said, we will never have a pet in the house. And for most of our marriage, that's been true. But then there's this thing called PetSmart, which I'm going to rename it Kids Trap because that is what it is. Let's go, to, let's go to, you know, Staples, and then we'll walk to Five Guys. Oh, it's right there in between the two. What's out there in front? These little cages with kittens and puppies. And I don't know who these people are, but they are the best salespeople ever. I don't know if they get paid on commission, but they promise you, like, so many. And they, they give these stories. This is Mr. Spots. He loves children, and it's so weird that he loves children because he didn't grow up with a mommy or daddy or brothers or sisters, and we found him in a garbage dump. (laughs) But now, we've come on the scene, and we rescued him, and we've given him vaccinations and shots, and now he's like a genius cat. (laughs) He's potty trained. He can actually read. He can cook dinner for your family. He can teach your kids algebra. Like, there's these promises. And so then we get home. Jess is like, we got to have a family meeting. And I know what that means. I'm going to lose. Right? I'm going to lose. My boys are sitting on the bed like this. My wife's got a laptop out with all these options of cats that we can get. And so then I lost. I lost. We lose. Okay? We go out. We go to a shelter. And we get the cat that we find and Finn and I went first and we had we looked at each other and this one cat like she jumped in my arms first and he's like this is sign and all this stuff and like so like we bring this cat home into our house and it's this is our cat by the way this is Katniss no don't you do that um and my boys named her Katniss they've never seen Hungry Games I just want to let you know that I have no idea how they came up with that name Katniss Comet Tugwell is the name that they came up. Katniss Comet Tugwell, CCT is her initials. Um, and so we have Katniss in our home for like last two years. She's been, I don't, she's not a part of our family. She's an animal in our house. Um, and so we have to teach her things. And you can take Katniss out. I don't want people feeling sorry for her. Uh, I'm just kidding. Um, and so we have to teach her things. And, and, and so here's how this looks in our house. 
So we want to teach her, okay, this is where the, you know, the kitty litter is. This is where you go, Katniss, right? This is where your food is, Katniss. This is where your drinks are. Like, and you're grabbing her. Like, this is the kitty litter. Know where this is. Know where this is, right? And so for the first like, few weeks, you're telling her where the food is. And how do we tell animals where stuff is? We point as if they understand directionally, oh, that way, right? So what does she do? Here's your food, Katniss. She's going this. You put the hand down, she follows it, and then she comes over and she licks it. It's like, no, 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 it's, it's right. And you've got to pick her up and put her right in front of the food. Eat your food, right? I baptize you in the name of the Father. Like, you're just <laughs> trying to get her to eat the food, trying to get her to, you know, and you're just letting her see, you know? But what, what she would often do is she would follow the finger. She would lick the finger and miss the food. And interestingly enough, as silly as that is, That is exactly what we do with creation. That's the danger with creation. Creation was not meant for us to come and smell and lick the finger. It was created in such a way, creation exists so that it would point us to our Savior and to our God. And so what we often do with creation, God's saying, listen, I've made all this for you. I've given you everything. And next week we're going to see, I've given you something that is good. I saw that it was good. I made it good. So that you would not just enjoy creation, but you would then in turn turn to your creator. And so as creation exists, let it not be the finger that we get distracted, but let let it be the finger that points us to our king and to our God. As we see God's creation, we just spent summers at the beach the mountains, maybe you were on a roller coaster, maybe you were on a boat, maybe you were just sitting on the park, maybe you were just enjoying time with your family. And even tomorrow, we're going to look at the sky and we're going to await this extraordinary event that happens every 18 years or something like that, the solar eclipse where the moon passes between the earth and the sun and just this odd scenario that's not a coincidence, that's put together perfectly by our God. And as we do that even tomorrow, and as we do this for the rest of our lives, let us not just stop there and say, wow, that's amazing. Let us stop there and say, God, you orchestrated all of this, all of this, so that I would see you as the one who holds all things together, as I would see Christ, the Son of God, And this morning, I hope that as you even see creation and the beauty of God's creative order, that you would see God's pursuit of you. He didn't just write you a book and say, oh, I hope you figured it out. No, he created all of this to say, I am pursuing you. I am wooing you to myself. He created you, and he knows you. And as the psalmist says, we are wonderfully complex. Some translations might say, we are fearfully complex. And wonderfully made. He made you and I unique and distinct, and He made everything around you in a way that would draw you to Him. And so, if you're here this morning and you're thinking that God is distant, I want you to know that He is near and He knows you. And if you're here this morning and you're trying to figure out a way to make this life work by just living in creation, just enjoying the created things without me looking to the creator. Let me just tell you, just as we read in Genesis chapter one, 
that the world was dark, and then God says, let there be light. This world is a dark place, and it's hopeless without Christ. And so what God did is he sent his son, Jesus, the light of the world. And if we put our faith and trust in him, we can be reconciled to our creator, and that we can have joy in this life, and this life is not all that we live, but then we have eternal life with our Father and our Creator and our God and our King. And so this morning, don't stay in the darkness, but run to the light. Before time as we know it, Jesus knew you. He set a stage for you to live, and God in his love sent his Son to die for your sins. And might his love and his pursuit of you overwhelm you this morning. Let us pray.